0: THE RELUCTANT CONFORMIST A BOOK BY RICHARD Cowley CHAPTER FOUR EPISODE TWO THE ENGINEER Three weeks after abandoning the monotonous routine of Hawker Siddeley factory life, and with only a taste of the geological training under his belt, Magnus found himself bouncing across the Algerian Sahara desert in the back of a long-wheel-based Land Rover. The vehicle was jam-packed with robed and turban-clad Arabs and desert-dwelling Berbers. One of these nomads smiled a good deal to show off his tribal status with a full set of nicotine and betel nut-stained gold-capped teeth. Crammed into the back of the truck, Magnus found viewing the passing barren scene nearly impossible, but he did get a close-up view of those gilded gnashes, which were a ghastly sight indeed. Occasionally the truck pulled over, so passengers could stretch their legs, relieve themselves, or crunch through a sandy chicken drumstick. After several hours, they stopped at the foot of a desolate, rock-strewn hill, on the side of which was scattered a village of mud-rendered buildings. The travellers entered a roadside adobe, through a bead-curtain fly-screen, into the cool darkness within. Once his eyes adjusted to the gloom, Magnus was both intrigued and amused at what he saw. They'd entered a cafe, in which the customers weren't dusty shepherds, as might be expected, but a cluster of desert spivs, dressed in black-and-white striped, double-breasted zoot suits. Each wilderness-wide boy sported big, slick back Elvis hair and shave-pointed sideburns. The new arrivals joined the suits to drink muddy coffee from miniature glass cups, before heading off ever southwards, into the never-ending rock-and-sandy wastelands. Their destination was an onshore oil exploration site near the Moroccan-Algerian border, on a latitude close to that of the Canary Islands, the same islands to which Magnus's grandfather had sailed to load cargoes of bananas. At that time, Algeria was undergoing major social upheavals, as the political rivals Boumidienne and Ben Bella had been vying for the country's top job after rejecting the French president's, Charles de Gaulle, ill-advised attempt at union between Algeria and France. The whole country seemed to be bristling with machine guns and camouflaged tanks on dusty manoeuvres. After a dull and thankfully short job familiarisation stint amongst the rocky dunes of the Algerian Sahara, Magnus was recalled to Paris to complete his training at inner city Place Saint-Georges and suburban Plamard. His fellow trainees were a mixed bag of international hopefuls. Several months later, he was assigned to work in Italy. He joined the American offshore rig Spindletop, named after the legendary Salt Dome oilfield discovery in the Lone Star state of Texas, where, so Americans claim, the modern oil industry was born. The rig was a floating platform constructed around the hull of a seagoing barge originally designed to transport railroad stock between the lower 48 states of the USA and Alaska. The oil exploration industry, working in the Italian sector of the Adriatic Sea, was based in the delightful shipbuilding Seaport of Ancona, which became Magnus's shoreside base. The work roster was two weeks of daily 12-hour shifts aboard the spindletop, followed by a week's shoreside side leave in Ancona. During one of these weeks ashore, he jumped an overnight ferry to Zarda, a seaport since before Roman times on the Yugoslavian Dalmatian coast. On arrival, a tourist information officer directed him to a house that offered bed and breakfast. With no forward booking, and the locals keen to make a quid, he was thankful to accept the only remaining space in town, a bed settee in the household's lounge. At the beach, Magnus must have seen a feeble, translucent apparition against the healthy-looking, sun-bronzed locals cavorting freely in the sparkling azure sea. He was a skinny, snow-white organism with bright blue eyes and a shock of red hair, only able to wallow at the water's edge because he was unable to swim a single stroke. After a day exploring, and an evening dining on the local speciality Chibacichi, washed down with a carafe of the regional red wine, he was contented, hangdog-tired, and ready for bed. However, it wasn't to be. Back at the digs, on opening the door to his makeshift bedroom, he was confronted by the entire household, and what he took to be members of their extended family, sitting on and about his bed watching television. Magnus spoke neither Croat, nor Italian, nor Russian, nor German, and none of the ton and a half of humanity, hogging his bed, spoke English, so communication was somewhat fraught. He was rather put out at having his bedroom invaded, but when they happily offered him a chair and a glass of the local spirit Slivovich, what could he do but sit down and join the party? What they were watching on black and white television had him baffled all that could be seen were vague shadows milling about like slow-motion deep-sea divers fully kitted out in underwater regalia, with pressure helmets, air tanks, and weighted boots. The drink flowed, the party proceeded, and he waited patiently for the cry mob hogging his bed city to leave so he could spirit up a little much-needed dream time. Several glasses of hooch later, he realized that he wasn't watching a murky underwater adventure of Lloyd Bridge's Sea Hunt on a faulty television. What his bedroom squatters were toasting and cheering so heartily, along with 600 million TV viewers around the world, was none other than a live broadcast of the first manned landing and human footprint on the moon, made by Neil Armstrong, an American astronaut. Throughout the entire spectacle, Their behavior was closely monitored under the steely gaze of Yugoslavia's benevolent dictator, Marshal Tito, whose twice life-size framed and glazed likeness peered down on them from a vantage point high on the lounge room wall. Occasionally, wild storms from the Russian steppes surged southwards through eastern Europe, throwing up mountainous waves across the normally benign Adriatic Sea, creating danger to shipping. One such tempest proved too lively for the flat-bottomed spindle top, and all non-essential personnel were forced to abandon ship. They were rescued and taken aboard a Norwegian Ned Lloyd rig supply boat. The leap from the spindle top's unnaturally lurching deck onto the thrashing deck of the rescue boat, pitching and corkscrewing alongside, proved to be a hair-raising escapade the iron grip on Marcus's arm of a tree-trunk-sized Norwegian deckhand was the necessary confidence booster to make the move. Aboard the rescue boat, as it rolled, bucked, and heaved towards the port of Ancona, most of the Italians—oil workers, catering staff, and drilling superintendents—cowered fetal-like in bunks, or rolled helplessly back and forth across the passenger cabin deck amidst a slop of oily, tomato-laced vomit. The acrid puke caked their clothes, hair, and faces with threads of half-digested spaghetti and blotchy red bolognese sauce. Magnus had never seen any group of people so dispirited, all hope gone, seemingly waiting for the blessed relief of death. Meanwhile, to escape the pathetic groaning and stench of vomit, Magnus spent most of the trip topside or on the bridge, exhilarated by the mighty seas and soaring decks with which he was familiar. During the roller coaster ride towards their home port, whilst the rescue vessel was tossed onto the crest of a mountainous wave, Magnus was astonished to glimpse a submarine periscope break the surface in the trough between the mighty waves not 30 feet off the port beam. It's interesting to speculate which of the two vessels would have fared worse had the Ned Lloyd rescue vessel surfed down the backside of a wave to crash with catastrophic force into the hapless submarine below. Instability in heavy seas was the death knell for the spindletop. She was towed into Ancona where she remained lashed to the quayside, side, awaiting a new drilling contract in calmer waters. In need of a new assignment, Magnus was sent to the gigantic Italian semi submersible rig Scarabeo. His first encounter with the twenty five story monster wasn't disembarking from a crew relief helicopter in the sunlit daytime hours, but hoist aboard by crane from the heaving deck of a rig service vessel in the dead of night. The hair-raising ride from the midnight blackness of the boat onto the floodlit rig above, while standing on a tiny wooden platform and white-knuckle gripping a thick rope net attached to the crane hook, was a terrifying experience. When dangling fifty metres above the oily black sea, the crane driver may spice up the occasion by jolting the hoist line as a friendly, welcome aboard, gesture. Now there's a surprise greeting guaranteed to drain the blood from the face of all but the most unimaginative. Magnus lived and worked aboard two further rigs during his seven months working in the Adriatic, the French drilling ship Neptune Gascoigne, and an ancient Italian jack-up rust bucket, the name of which he'd long forgotten. It was waiter service and linen serviettes in the dining rooms aboard the three European registered and manned rigs, with wine and spirit as you wished the American rig was quite the contrary, a military-style, line-up-and-help-yourself mess that was dry as a bone. For all their crowing of constitutional freedom, there appeared to remain a solid lobby for containment and prohibition amongst the influential political classes in Washington, D.C. These so-called elites appear to cling to the conviction that their own countrymen are unable to act responsibly in their own or others best interest when it comes to the consumption of alcohol and judging from magnus's experience of some american oil workers at play shoreside they may well be right without doubt the european rigs were the most comfortable on which to live and work but the italian helicopter service left a lot to be desired they were deadly during his seven months in italian waters Three helicopters servicing the rigs on which he'd worked mysteriously crashed into the sea, leaving no survivors. A stylish and charming Italian colleague, Bertoli, whose priorities in life were fast cars, good food, and beautiful women, in no particular order, just so long as they were plentiful and available, died in one of these disasters. It was assumed that the pilot of the low-flying helicopter lost track of the horizon when altering course towards the coast in a thick dawn fog, and flew directly into the sea at over 160 kilometers an hour, killing all aboard. During his time in the Adriatic, Magnus picked up enough Italian to do his job with an efficient, albeit humorous, way of communicating with the rigged personnel. Part of his job was to alert them of drilling breaks or the presence of combustible or poisonous gas. Normal conversation was, however, a dead loss, so he requested a transfer. The Paris office graciously obliged, offering a choice between Abu Dhabi and Australia. In the late 1960s, Abu Dhabi wasn't the air-conditioned tourist paradise it is today. At the time, it was a traditional Persian Gulf trading port, unbearably hot with near 100% humidity, not a desirable place to be unless you possess the disposition of lawrence of arabia during his time at sea in the merchant navy magnus had spent nearly two months partying and loading cargo at all the major australian ports and had greatly liked what he had seen so once again he was australia bound